Well, this week, I was reminded of a song written sometime in the 80s when all decent songs were written. And it was written by Michael W. Smith. I I was reminded of it so much that I actually watched the corny video that goes with it as well. And there were a lot of corny videos in those days. But the words of that song would be maybe apropos for what we're going to discuss today. It says this, The wind is moving, but I am standing still. A life of pages waiting to be filled. A heart that's hopeful. A head that's full of dreams. But this becoming is harder than it seems. Feels like I'm looking for a reason Roaming through the night to find my place in this world. Not a lot to lean on. I need your light to help me find my place in this world. And as I thought about that this week, it occurred to me that that might possibly be the cry of the Christian. As we've been working now for weeks and indeed months, working through Peter's first letter, we've been reminded That we are a mixture of resident aliens, suffering fiery trials yet with joy, looking forward to the coming of of a, a yet unseen Savior, fighting old patterns of unholy living while we're seeking to live lives of holiness. We're taking God at His word as we long for spiritual nourishment. All of these things might be said to be real or true about those of us who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet in all of these things, there is this overriding sense that you and I just don't fit in. We we just don't belong here. And that's going to be the theme in the coming weeks as we continue this study through 1 Peter. We don't belong here. We don't fit in. Yet we are what? We're here. Here we are nonetheless. We're part of this world We are, Peter would say in a few verses, we are strangers in this world. We are foreigners in this world. We are aliens in this world. That much is clear, especially as you look at the coming uh, verses in in our text in 1 Peter chapter 2. But brothers and sisters, you and I could be here today, and I hope that we're here today, wondering about, longing to discover our place in this world. Well, this morning... God answers that question for us in our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And it's here in this text that this morning we're going to discover together three great, three wonderful, three marvelous truths that will help us to discover our place in this world. And they just fall right off the page for us. You'll notice, first of all, in verse 9 of chapter 2, we'll see our God-appointed identity. And then we continue there into the end, the middle in verse 9, and the end of verse 9, and we'll see our God-assigned purpose. And then in verse 10, we'll notice our God-assured condition. Now, I'm not going to take a long time today. I view today as probably likely being like a 30,000-foot flyover. We're not going to get into all of the details, I, I think. I think we're just going to get the big picture here. And if we need to, to, to do some wrap-ups, to tie up some loose ends, we'll do that in the coming weeks. But what I hope has happened, will happen this morning, is that every believer will walk out of this place today with the weight of this text 
on your shoulders to the degree that you and I have a sense of not just our individual place in this world, but our corporate place in this world. Look at our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And we read this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who called a, a, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you pray with me? Our Father, it is with a sense of great joy and heavy responsibility that we read your word today. Your word Would you speak now and let everyone who is a servant of Christ hear to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Three wonderful truths that will help us to discover our place in this world. But before we get there, I just want to point something out to you. I want to point out what would be the very first word, or at least the very first emphasis, what's placed in the emphatic position in this verse. And it's not but, but it's the word you. And it's the plural for you. We would, in this area of the world, we would say use. Use guys. Or some of you might be from uh, maybe western Pennsylvania or or other places, and you say yins or uins. And some of you might be from where my wife is, and you just say, y'all. And that just, all y'all, right? And you got to kind of say it with that kind of draw. Y'all, all y'all, right? That's what, if, if, if we were reading, you know, the new, the, the, the NSV, the new southern version, that's what it would say. You y'all, all y'all. He's not just talking to, he is talking to individuals, but not To individuals as individuals, he's talking to the collective whole, to the gathered community, to the church together. And this is, he's talking to the church in direct opposition, or maybe I should say it this way, in direct contrast to what he has just been speaking of. What's he just been speaking of? He's just been speaking of those who disobey the word. Those who disobey the word, and in their disobedience, they keep stumbling over Christ. In their disobedience, they they keep stumbling over Christ, a doom, which Peter says, to which they have been appointed or assigned by God. Right now, instead of addressing them, he's just brought them up last week. We looked at that. But this morning, he's now addressing those who do not stumble over Christ, those who do not disobey the word, those who do not disbelieve Christ, but those who rather who have come to Christ, who have received Christ, who trust Christ, who obey the word of the gospel. So he, we could say he is addressing the collective church. Not even just the local assembly, but the church universal. And he wants you to know these three great truths. What are they? First, our God-appointed identity. Now, what do we mean? There's a lot that's spoken of today 
in regards to identity. What is your identity? What does it mean when we talk about someone's identity? Someone defined identity as this. They said it's the collective. I think this is good, so pay, so pay attention to it. The collective aspect of the set of characteristics by which a thing or person is definitively recognizable or known. Or, let me put it this way, our identity is what is definitively true about us by which we are known. What does God say about the identity of those who have come to Christ? Now remember, Peter's talking to these Christians as a collective group, not just as an individual. You, you're not here today just as an individual for me to somehow speak to you and sort of puff you up and make you walk out of here with your own individual identity. This, this identity, this, this, the, the reality by which you're known definitively is described by God in four ways. He says it this way. Again, you are, not us, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those four things. What is our God-appointed identity? Well, first, he would refer to this. He would say that we are selected as a chosen race. Selected as a chosen race. Now, I want you to pay close attention because we have this, this sort of adjective noun pattern here. The noun in this first one here is race. It's the word from which we get our word genus. Not genius, but genus. Like, like speaking of a family. It speaks of family lineage. And what he's doing here when he says you, you all, y'all, all y'all are a chosen race. He's, he's speaking of this notion of being adopted into a special family. Our identity is such that we have been adopted by God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not of our own initiative, but rather of the initiative of God, as we see in the adjective that he uses. And that adjective is the, the, the word chosen. It's a very familiar word. We've seen it a lot in the book of 1 Peter. We see it all through the New Testament. It's the Greek word eklektos. It just means chosen, elect, selected. You are a chosen family. You are selected as a chosen family. That's what he says of our identity. Selected as a chosen race. I like what Charles Wendall said. He said, now, now our heads might swell at the notion that we're chosen by God unless we realize that this wasn't an election for which we campaigned. <laughs> Look what I mean. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 7 for a moment. What's interesting about this, this text is Peter draws on several Old Testament passages to illustrate that are illustrative of what is true about the New Testament church. Look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He's speaking to, to Israel here. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Wow, you can just feel their, their chest popping, you know, puffing up and their 
head kind of going back and they're, they're just full of themselves. And then he says, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and shows you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Why is it? But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's why he's doing this. This is totally the initiative of God. Your identity, what what distinguishes you, not just as an individual, but as the church as a whole, is that of being a select, chosen family, a select, chosen race. And he takes these, 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 Peter, as I said, is drawing some Old Testament corollaries between Israel and Gentile believers. He takes this Old Testament language uh, that, w- that was addressed to the nation of Israel and he uses it to explain the relationship that God has with his people under the new covenant. Now, some of you are going to ask a question, and we'll probably deal with this in the coming weeks, but some of you would ask the question, well, does that mean then that the church or the New Testament people of God have replaced uh, the, 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 the Israel, the nation Israel? And of course, we would just let Paul answer that, and he would answer that in Romans 11 with these words, by no means, absolutely not. You see what he does? And we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. He compares Jesus as the true vine, the true olive tree, if you will. Israel was never the true vine. Israel was never the true olive tree. Church was never the true vine or the true olive tree. Jesus always was. And he says, what God does is he takes some branches, the natural branches, and he removes them and sets them aside. And then what does he do? He grafts in wild olive tree branches, he grafts them in. And that's what you and I are. We have been grafted into Christ as a work holy of grace and nothing owing to ourselves. That's the point. The point is that we, and I, that we have been chosen by God, elected to his family, grafted into Christ. He ordained that we would be in Christ. So first, your God Appointed identity could be talked about in terms of selected as a chosen race. But then he uses this this phrase, a royal priesthood. And we would just kind of summarize that in these words, serving as a royal priesthood. That's our identity, this royal priesthood. He's borrowing from Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, just turn there with me if you will for a moment. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, and we're going to be you can kind of keep your finger in this passage. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. He says this, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter continues to use Old Testament terminology to bring New Testament application of truth. We are called a royal priesthood. Now, doesn't that just bless your heart? And you say, no. Because I have no idea what that means. I am taking this to refer to a to, to being priests of a king. Listen to the words of one commentator. I thought this was good. He said, A royal priesthood reminds us as believers that as priests we serve royalty. We have not landed a maid service position. We are part of God's forever. Kingdom. You want to know your place in this world? 
you have been made into a royal priesthood. In other words, you are serving in, in a priestly service to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now we know, according to the book of Revelation, that this will ultimately be lived out in the future earthly kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ when Jew and Gentile are brought under one kingdom as those who serve as royal priests before God and who rule together with him. But for now, I just want you to understand it in this way. A priest has specially ordained access to God. In this case, you and I have specially ordained access to the king, and not just any king, but the king of kings, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. In that way, you and I can see that we have access to the Lord God himself. We have been utterly cleansed. We have been utterly granted at any moment access to the king. We don't have to go through another mediator. We don't have to go through a mediatrix. We don't have to go through any other way, but we have direct access to the king. That's what defines us. That's what is our identity. I am known by this. You are known by this. The church is known by this. Listen, we, are, we have access to the king. That's, that, that's, that's our identity. To come to him offering acceptable sacrifices as we learned last week through Jesus Christ. Moment by moment access to God himself. Certainly through prayer, in worship, thanksgiving, service, and praise. We are serving as a royal priesthood. That's who we are. But then look what he says. A holy nation. Holy, what does that speak of? It speaks of being separate or sanctified. We are sanctified as a holy nation. Again, Peter keeps going back to the Old Testament. Exodus 19, verse 6. And he looks at the gathered saints. He looks at the church. And he refers to them, in the words of one commentator, to a community of people held together by the same laws, customs, and mutual interests. You see, what's so glorious about the, the, the assembly of God, the church, is that we are an international community of people who have been granted life from God. It's not that each individual body is its own independent nation, but rather there is one international nation set apart and purified under the Lord Himself. What defines us as a nation? It is the fact that we've been separated or, or sanctified, made holy, cleansed and reserved apart for special purpose. There is a certain identity that most, if not all of us, share. And that is the identity uh, of, of our Americanness. No matter where I go, I, I take my Americanness with me. Where I go, in a sense, I, I take a bit of America with me. And there is a sense in which wherever I go, if I face some difficulty or find myself in some trouble, that America would likely, hopefully, probably maybe come for me. 
And, and what he's saying here is that God is building up his own people, his own nation, gathering them out of all of the nations of earth as his own sanctified, special people reserved for his specific purpose. You see, we, we our, our God-appointed identity, we would refer to that as being selected as a chosen race or selected as a chosen family, adopted into God's family, serving as a royal priesthood and, and sanctified as a, a holy nation. But then the fourth identifier, he says this, a people for God's own possession. We, if you have the King James Version, this, this is where the, the words... Are, are somewhat archaic, somewhat different, but, but it really makes sense. We are a peculiar people. But the sense is not peculiar in the sense of peculiar, the way we use it today, like weird. It's the sense of being a purchased possession. We are special as a people for God's own possession. And he's drawing here from Isaiah 43, 21, when God refers to his people as the people who, uh, whom I have formed for myself. This is, you are, we are God's purchased possession. We sang, I think it was last week we sang this song from the 19th century writer uh, G. Wade Robinson, one of my favorite hymns. See if you recognize it. I won't sing it, but I'll quote it. Love with everlasting love, drawn by grace that love to know. Spirit sent from Christ above, thou dost witness it is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine in a love that cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. I love the last verse of it. His forever only his who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. Firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am His. And He is mine. Special as God's own People. Again, I don't want to stay here too long. I just want to do a flyover this morning. But know that your identity, indeed our identity, is wrapped up in our existing as a purchased possession of God. Just look around. Look around you this morning. And I want you to see the very possessions of God Himself. Purchased possession. Purchased possession. Purchase possession of God Himself. That's how we are to think of one another. Our God-appointed identity, selected as a chosen race, serving as a royal priesthood, sanctified as a holy nation, special as a people for God's own possession. But the second great truth that we want to to leave here with today is our God-assigned purpose. And you see it right here in the text, don't you? Our God-assigned purpose. Right in the middle of verse 9, you see in the ESV, that you see that word, that. That. It's, it's, a, it's an unusual word, but it's a word that, we're, in, in the Greek language anyway, it's a word that refers to something that is designed to take place. Something that God designed to take place. In other words, our identity has a, has a specifically designed purpose, and that can be seen in two ways. 
so that, or that, this is the design, you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. Stop. We, our purpose, is proclamation. In this way, I would say it this way. To proclaim the superiority of God's character. Now that word proclaim, this is the only time that this word is ever used in the New Testament. It is a completely, utterly unique word. And it, and it has just a wide sense of meaning. It, it can mean proclaim is probably the best English word. We could talk about the word for publish or to publicize. One person even gave it the, the understanding of to advertise. He referred to this as in terms of advertising. We are to advertise. God designed our identity as a billboard on which to publish something about himself. Not to publish anything about us, but to, to publish something about him. Namely, the superiority of his character. When it says that you are, may proclaim the excellencies that word used four times in the new testament and it refers to the eminence or to eminence superiority as a result of the inherent nature or character of god to publish or advertise or publicize or proclaim the excellencies of him is to extol his glorious attributes the superiority of god that, that, that he is the one true God above and beyond all others. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And this had a particular interesting application because Peter is writing to those who are under the finger of the Roman Empire, more particularly under the finger of the Roman emperor, and emperor worship was really ramping up at this time. And if you ever said anything to the degree that there is another God higher than the Roman emperor, your life was at stake. And he says, God made the community of believers, God made the congregation of believers, we call that the church, as a billboard on which to publicize His character. His character. What have we just spent the last number of weeks talking about? We've just spent the last number of weeks talking about the character of God in terms of His goodness. And you see, you and I, all, all y'all, all yuns, right, are made into this brilliant billboard on which to display God's character, God's attribute, His goodness. Our lives say something about Him. Not only do we proclaim the superiority of God's character. But we, this is kind of the, the second half of this, we proclaim the sovereignty of God's grace. See what he says? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. Now look, who 
called you, you all, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to proclaim the sovereignty of God's grace. What do you mean? We are to publish abroad the one who called us. And listen, that word called is very important. Almost every time it is used in the New Testament, it refers to what theologians call the effectual call of God. What do I mean? I'm talking here about the ultimately irresistible and powerful work of God to bring men to faith in Christ through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm talking about. We are a billboard that displays the sovereignty of grace. Peter loves this word called. He uses it in verse 15 of chapter 1, verse 21 of chapter 2, verse 9 of chapter 3, verse 10 of chapter 5. We are a walking billboard that publicizes God's sovereign grace. For listen, friends, the only explanation for our life is the grace of God. I remember Stephen Olford. One time saying this, he was preaching Grace Community Church back in the late 90s, and he said this, if your life does not demand a supernatural explanation, you are a phony. Wow. If your life does not demand a supernatural explanation, you are a phony. I remember... First moved back here in the mid-90s. This is when Kmart was still a thing. All right? It was a lot better than Walmart is today, but Kmart was still a thing. And I was in there, and I was walking in to get whatever you get at Kmart. And I see a guy walking out who I graduated from high school with. And he's like, hey, Joe. Or everyone called me, Joey, what's going on? And I'm like, hey, Scott, good to see you. We're talking. He goes, what are you doing now? And I go, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, what happened? I'm not talking about some supposed supernatural intervention. Some of you, when you hear me say, if your life does not demand a supernatural explanation, you think I'm talking about some supposed supernatural intervention that may or may not have happened. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the supernatural intervention in which you've encountered the sovereign grace in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the pages of Scripture. That you were living your life and doing your thing and then all of a sudden this gobbledygook started to make sense to you and you said, oh my, I see like I've never seen before. There is a transformation, a change that takes place in your life that begins in your heart and begins in your mind such that you start to see Jesus differently than you ever have before. And that's the supernatural explanation. The church 
that is known for its slick marketing campaigns and compelling giving schemes, the church that can be explained by its suave preachers and cool bands, its latest gadgets and attractive teaching doesn't demand a supernatural explanation. That all can be explained by a Google search. But what demands a supernatural explanation is a gathered people who love the Lord Jesus Christ even though they've never seen Him. What demands a supernatural explanation is a gathered group of people who serve one another though it demands their sacrifice and may even bring fiery trial. That demands a supernatural explanation. A gathered people who come together for the sake of pursuing a holiness which is completely out of step with that which is culturally acceptable. Which is completely out of step with the way that we used to live our lives. That demands a supernatural explanation. How do we proclaim? How do we publicize? How do we we publish, advertise God? We tell out the nature and attributes of God as a normal part of our life. We, We let our life and lips always be centered on His character, always looking for an opportunity to direct others to the reason for the hope. And that's coming up in chapter three, isn't it? And you're praying and you're singing and you're loving and you're serving and you're talking and you're mowing the yard and you're taking care of your kids in the way that you do your work every day, day in and day out. You are publishing something about God. Or can I say this way? God is publishing on you something about Him. That He is excellent, superior to every other God. Our God-appointed identity, our God-assigned purpose. And then lastly, our God-assured condition. The last thing that stands out here comes to us in verse 10. The last thing that stands out here about the community of believers is our God-assured condition. And this is really something that probably we'll have to come back at and, and take a look at again. But just to summarize, Peter has been using these analogies from the Old Testament to explain what God has done to those who have come to believe on Christ. And Peter calls back to the Old Testament. In this case, in verse 10, he calls back to the Old Testament minor prophet named Hosea. And oh, what a prophecy that is. It is is an unveiling of sorts. It is an unveiling, first of all, of the true condition of the Jewish nation. In Hosea, we find that the Jewish nation will stop at nothing to pursue their own righteousness. They will continue to spurn and turn from God at every angle and on every corner, literally on the street corner, that is, like a prostitute who turns from her husband and home and goes out to pursue her own desires. So is the nation of Israel, who even though pursued by God, continues on her own trajectory. But not only is it an unveiling of of the the, the depravity of Israel, it is an unveiling of God. There is such a revelation about God in the Old Testament book of Hosea that we can hardly contain ourselves when we begin to think about Him as He is revealed in this book. He is revealed as the God of great love who pursues and loves and brings back His erring child over and over and over again. He is revealed as the God of infinite holiness as His judgment is pronounced and at the same time the God of sweet and tender mercy as those who are not a people are now made to be a people and those who have received no mercy 
mercy will receive mercy. What is our God-assured condition, church? We are in the condition of being people of God. Peter turns to the community of believers and looks out over them and says, all y'all, at one point, you were not a people. You had no distinct existence. You had no distinct and discernible usefulness in God's kingdom program. And Peter would look at the universal church today and see an assembly of people, a hodgepodge of languages and cultures and colors with no discernible traits uh, useful for God and for his kingdom. That's how we see the church. They, they're, they're unconnected. In the words of one commentator, I think this is good, a heterogeneous mass of Gentiles, aliens from God and separated from each other by race, language, customs, and religion. But God. But God, in an act of sheer grace and infinite wisdom, brought together a people who were no people and made them into the people of God, the very ones identified not simply by Him, but with Him. That's your condition, church. The people of God. You were not a people, you were nothing. Big fat goose egg. Nada, zilch, nothing. And whatever word in French means that. We were nothing. But God created a people out of no people. People of God and then pitied by God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You really just need to understand the emphasis here on mercy. Mercy is just pity. Our entire life before coming to Christ is just summarized as being without mercy. Our entire life before Christ was lived outside of that compassionate care of our Creator. I probably told you this before, but uh, just... A few months ago, I was on a village road in northern Uganda. Dust everywhere from those village roads. Bushes were nearly covering what passed as a road. And I was there with one of the, the leaders of the church at Calvary Bible Church, Kitgum, northern Uganda. And we were on the way to visit another little, little raggedy bunch of gathered people together who were gathered under the mango trees in front of a mountain that for generations had been used for ancestral and idol worship. And that day, that elder, his name is Achan, he looked at me and he said in words similar to this, Pastor, I just have to tell you how grateful we are. We're so grateful that God has accepted us. We really can't even believe it that he'd be merciful to us. We can't imagine that we are Christians. We never thought that we could be Christians. He went on and talked about how they were really bad people and how they were really far from God, but God. You see, we've been pitied by the same God who has declared our judgment 
He looked at us at our, in our pitiable state without mercy and He shed mercy on us. Why refer to this as God's pity? Because that's exactly what it is. We are just a motley mass, a, a bedraggled bunch. Think of it, friends. Think of it. The people in this room today, not too long ago, some of us were drunks stumbling around in darkness. Not too long ago, some of us were adulterating fornicators. Even worse, some of us were religious, self-righteous people who were glorying in and gloating in our self-righteousness, somehow believing that we were better than the person who was behind us in line to hell. But God, but God, but God, Wow. You wanting to know your place in this world? You wondering where you fit in when you just don't feel like you fit in? Peter told us. As we understand our God-appointed identity, as we understand our God-assigned purpose, and as we understand and come to realize our God-assured condition. There's so many points of application that we can make and I told myself that I'm going to try to finish this early today but let me just summarize this application there, there is a personal application that we'll come to in a couple of weeks Peter's been drawing this parallel between God's work in the nation of Israel and God's work in the new covenant work of, of the church in this way Israel serves as a very important history lesson for us all. You see, Paul tells us in Romans 11 that their disobedient disbelief is actually a warning to us not to presume upon God's grace. It's a warning to us all who are in Christ to continue to pursue Christ in faith to, as Jesus would say in John 15, abide in Him and His Word abide in us. For without him, we could do nothing. See what happens to Israel? When they began to turn, when they began to get, to, 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 to get attracted by the flashy things of, of the world and the culture and everything else around them, and they turned from Christ, and that was their judgment. And he says to you, you turn from Christ, that will be your judgment. Not only is there a personal application, there's what I can call, a, I'd like to call a missions application. A missions application. Do you see what God is doing? God is not just saving an ethnicity. He's not just saving an ethnic group. He is saving a motley mass, a bedraggled bunch from every language, tribe, nation on the earth. And that's what the work of missions is, essentially, is you and I transporting this billboard that God has created to a different culture and, and being used by God in that culture to publish, to publicize to advertise His excellence. His superiority. With His guarantee that He will gather some. 
And then there is a local assembly application. This can be applied in how we're to think, not simply about ourselves as individuals, but how we're to think about the gathered saints. By God's grace, we are part of this intergenerational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, international family of God that is traced from before the foundation of the world throughout all of human history, from the Garden of Eden to the gardens of Babylon, from the days of Noah to the days of Elijah, from Israel to Egypt. There are people from every tribe and language and nation under the sun who have been gathered out and assembled as the people of God. This local assembly application is now for you and I to look at each other the way through the lens of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. As we go today, we're, we're, we're going into growth group Sunday. Many of you have growth group meetings today. If, if you're not in part of a growth group, I just ask you to go ahead and gather some people today or this week and, and use some of these questions. They'll be on the screen for you. They're also on the app that you can look at those. And use these questions for discussion be thoughtful about them, uh, snap a picture of it, whatever you do, be thoughtful about them as you go into growth group today and discuss these things so that we can uh, get a fuller picture of what God intends for this local assembly here, for us, how we're to think and how we're to act and what we're to do for the glory of God. This is, we, we know who God's rock is. His name is Jesus And now we've seen our role. Let's pray.